Hello and welcome to another edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. This podcast is proudly provided by Axon, helping dealers move more iron for almost 100 years. Find out more at axontire.com. Axon was started almost 100 years ago out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. It's that same passion that drives them today. With a vision for a better experience for both farmer and dealer, they set out to create a better way to move more iron. When you partner with Axon, you get immediate access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. Axon carries all major brands and sizes of tires, wheels, and tracks. From custom colors and sizes to fully customized wheels, you can have the solution for virtually any problem today's farmer is trying to solve. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving iron. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Axon Tire, helping dealers move more iron for the past 100 years. For more information, go to axontire.com and also Arrow. If you're looking for a great place to help your salespeople sell more stuff, go to heyarrow.com and check out their great products they have there. This is Moving Iron Podcast number 229, and this is the monthly uh, economy rundown with, with uh, Rich Pasta, and he's nice enough to come on and talk about what's going on in the market so rich how you been man good and yourself not too bad i tell you, you and i've been doing this now going on about three years here maybe three and a half years and and oddly enough we've never had uh to struggle to come up with anything to talk about and this this week this month's no different <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now we've got you know inflation talk the fed's been doing you know one day they're going to taper the next day they're not and it kind of throws the markets all over the place the stock markets have had some pretty wild swings here over the last 30 days. And then we've got this natural gas thing kind of hanging out there when you start looking at energy. So um, first off, I guess, Rich, let's talk about what you've got going on there. Talk about your podcast and where they can find that stuff out. Sure. Uh, I got two websites. Uh, the newest site is really for explanation, uh, information, education, talk about myself, the services. And that's a critical point pod dot com and there are links there to get to the actual podcast videos and audios the, you can go directly to those video and audios at critical critical and uh there you'll find it's just a simple website it's just a list and it just scrolls so if i put a video up in the next few minutes you'll just be at the top of that list shoves everything down some stuff is free, some is a subscriber, and you can just click on a, uh, a subscription button to subscribe to it. It's a monthly recurring payment. And the service provides model-based analysis from, a, say, a business, business perspective of uh, the economy, stock market, uh, the grain markets, a few other commodities, interest rates. I do a little climate research as well. And what I provide to people is knowledge of how the market is going to fluctuate in the next few days, few weeks, months, years, even decades, believe it or not. And it's running very accurate. I've been doing this for a few decades now. 
and I use this in my own investing and, and trading and whatnot. And uh, if people just give it a chance, give it a try, especially on the video side, they'll see charts and they'll see the model label put on those charts. And then they'll listen to my discussion and they'll watch me move the mouse right across that chart. And they can see we're very repetitive in how we do business. Okay, We're all going to get a certain amount of business done every day, week, month, year. And this model is picking up on that pattern. I, I have an inside information, if you will, of when the major groups that make these markets move, when they need to do something. And I think that's very important information because some about 50% of the time, markets will not be in line with the fundamental news and information. And so what's that other 50%? And that's what this model is uh, focusing on. Right on. Well, guys, make sure you go out and check that out. Uh, Rich has got a lot of great information. Like you said, his stuff is uh, is got some really good, uh, really good track record there as far as as uh, as making gains and, and winning out there on the on the stock market. So, well, Rich, let's talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about what's going on in the Fed. Um, you know, you got uh, the Fed. The Fed chairmen are out there, and they're all up for for reelection right now. So they're trying to to be as as dovish as they possibly can. And not try to sound like too much of a hawk, but I guess what's your reaction to some of this rhetoric that you hear coming out of the Fed right now? Yeah, um, the Fed tries to move really slow. They're interested in a long-term trend. They don't want to get caught up jumping around. Problem is, if the stock market's <laughs> falling by a huge amount, if the headline news is drastic, and now for the first time in decades, we have surging inflation, uh, and obviously, if you're in a recession, then they have a mandate where they've got to take action. Otherwise, they'd like to smooth things out, take their time at, at uh, trying to manage what's going on in our economy and specifically financial markets. Right today, I think the Fed is mostly of the mindset that, hey, this economy, we're out of the virus recession. It's going to take years before we have to worry of something else blowing up and have another recession. So we need to now start raising rates and back out. We don't need to support and help let the economy stand on its own two feet. So they're ready to do that. And they kind of gave us hints in the last meeting they may start next year of raising rates. They also said that maybe by year end, they're going to start tapering, which means they're just going to cut back, meaning they're buying bonds and various debt instruments to take it off the balance sheet of banks so banks can just go out and loan more. Okay, And that helps stimulate the economy, keeps things going. And what they're now saying is things are good enough. We don't need to do that. Banks can stand on their own two feet and continue to loan. So they got to taper. And the markets do get nervous over that because they feel like it's it's kind of a way to actually raise interest rates when in, in theory the Fed's saying, well, that's not it. We're just cutting taper or not truly raising rates. But the market can get a little nervous over that at times. Now, in reality, however, the market should think of it as long term, that if they're tapering, it means the economy's safe. It's probably going to stay there for quite some time. So we should want them to taper. But it's fascinating how on a short term basis, people get a little nervous and they'll sell some stocks. They get worried, oh, they're going to jump the rates too fast and hurt the economy. Tapering shouldn't do that. If rates are jumping, it's because of the free market overreacting, in my opinion. Now, once they start raising rates, it's a different story because generally the whole world of interest rates is going to follow or lead uh, the Fed higher. And we want the Fed to eventually raise rates because how it works is when the recession comes, the bad times come, the Fed wants to lower rates, pump the money, help out wherever they can. Well, if you're already at zero rates, 
how can they help? So they've got to raise that rate during a good economic time. So when the bad time comes, they can lower it. So this is really just, it's uh, really like a script or a textbook for them. They know what they got to do. They're going to do it eventually. The key is to, you know, especially like if we go into default over this debt ceiling, obviously that's going to shove them off. So there could be things where they suddenly flip on us, change their mind, say, we're going to wait a while. And it's just because it makes them a little nervous that that if they do it, it's going to make even the markets more nervous. So they're kind of stuck in a, a tough spot. If they raise rates, some people get upset. If they don't lower, uh, if they don't raise rates, some people are going to be upset. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario, huh? Yes. Yep. Right on. All right. So let's talk about inflation a little bit. So uh, that's uh, the key. That's definitely something that's happened right now. I mean, you go to the grocery store and start looking around at what it costs to buy just your milk, bread, eggs, you know, some meat and those kind of things. That's drastically higher than it was this time last year. So I guess as you take a look at the inflation situation that we have, what are your thoughts there? Uh, so inflation's running, what, over 5%. Um, I believe it's going to top out this year. I am getting a little concerned and that it's going to last just a little bit longer than I think on into the end of the year, maybe the start of the year, but I still believe it'll back off next year. The reason I think it's going to hang up a little longer is we got an issue over in the energy side where European energy prices have just exploded. It's unbelievable. Okay. It's right straight up when you chart them and they got a serious problem. It's probably going to hurt their economy. Okay. Uh, China has a similar issue. They're very tight over there. Uh, they're seeing firm prices. So this is worried, even the U.S. and the world for that matter, that there can be a contagion that these energy markets just are not going to have the flow they should to put a lid on prices. So our prices are jumping. And a few months ago, I made a call, a uh, long-term call, and for crude oil to come down, I said it'll go down and lower into next year. I said most commodities should roll over. It's going to help my lower inflation story for next year. And it was working fine. Oil prices were coming down. Then this European thing hits. And my model did say, hey, it's time to run oil prices back up, but it should not go to a new high for the year. Problem is, once that European thing got going, then the model said, guess what? It's going to go higher than we think. Well, it's already punched out a new high as of this week for the year. And fortunately, months ago, I warned people, there could be a third opportunity for this to top out near the end of the year here. And the problem is we're going into winter too. So how right. much can that yeah. add to it? And there are people thinking we're going to have a cold winter. I, I don't have an opinion on that right now. But um, you could just see people are just, they're making too big a deal out of this energy. And there's really enough energy. And with crude oil going over $80, I'm convinced it hurts our economy. So we got to be a little nervous over that. I don't think it's, I don't think it'd be serious enough to, you know, it's not going to trigger a recession on its own, but it's just going to clip. I mean, pretty soon people are going to say, well, I'm paying more at the gas pump, uh, paying more to heat my house. And so they cut back on something else. And so I, I'm not sure all commodities are going to follow crude oil higher because of that idea. People are going to cut back on other things, but I will say, this commodities could have a little better support. And I think I can see it. Cotton just knocked out a new high for the year. Looks extremely strong. In my opinion, it's way overpriced. But what are you going to do? They, they, it was very, very quiet market for what, four months? And then all of a sudden, bang. And yeah. I'm wondering, I'm wondering what other commodities are going to hang in there a little longer than I think before they pull back. But I have not changed my forecast uh, to pull back next year. But I am concerned that... Uh, Fixing the supply chain is going to be a little slower than I thought. 
Uh, I kind of thought we'd be over it by the first quarter of next year. Maybe it's going to take a little bit longer. I almost think the markets are kind of making too big a deal out of that. Really, the supply chain, in my opinion, should hold commodities back because you can't ship them as cheap as you could. You can't even ship them on time the way you could, especially the ocean freight shipping, which is outrageously high price for uh, uh, freights for ocean uh, uh, ships, cargoes. So um, I got complications there that may hold this inflation up. And then the Fed this week even come out and said, you know, maybe inflation is going to stay up a little longer than we thought. And it was interesting. Commodities picked up the pace. That might have been coincidence, but I wonder if at least the speculator isn't back to, to buying him somewhat. But again, I look out to next year and I think this is going to blow over. And when you look at things like the grain markets, we're already refilling the grain bins. So there's not as much upside for the grains as there is in the inflation story. Okay. Cotton, you can argue we're not filling the the uh, the warehouse as, as fast as normal. I, I shouldn't say fast as normal, but it takes a while. Cotton harvest can be quite late compared uh, to, say, grains. And maybe that explains why the, the prices are rolling higher on cotton, that they're still kind of tight there before they get their hands on new supply. So, uh, so yeah, I'm not concerned. Inflation stays up a little higher, and I think a little longer. It will set back uh, next year. Very convinced of that. But keep in mind, my super cycle forecast and major long-term forecasts suggest higher inflation this decade and perhaps even into the following decade. So I say it backs off next year, but over the years, there'll probably be other developments that will put inflation rate back up again. Um, if you look back the last three decades, we've had quite often inflation 1%, zero, minus 1%. And then, of course, you get a recession and you sometimes get minus 5% inflation. Um, we're now set up, we're going to spend most of the time of this decade above zero. And we're probably going to spend above 2% more often than normal. And the Fed's been wanting 2%. And I think they decided they had to work harder to get it. And they changed some of their modeling and some of their requirements. Well, now they're getting it. And they're probably a little bit concerned of staying too high because inflation can be a good thing when you come up out of a recession, but you know you can get it too high and then it hurts everyone. Right. Okay. So now that inflation and the Fed and those kind of things kind of lead into what we see happen in the stock market. The stock market has been, you know, it'll be off five or 600 points and then it'll rebound, you know, 800 points and it'll drop off five or 600 points. So we have some pretty massive swings in the market right now over the last 30 days. I guess as you take a look at that, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. Well, I was looking for a setback in September and October. And the model did pretty well uh, for timing that top and and the bear market phase, but I uh, or not a bear market, I should say, just this downswing uh, seasonally. Meaning, normally around September, October, the stock market doesn't do well. It can be the worst months of the year when you go back and study like a hundred years of the stock market. Uh, November, December, interesting enough, can be the best months of the year. Um, so I, I feel that I was on top of it, of this decline. And I think most of Wall Street felt like a decline was coming. People were getting nervous over making so much money out of the stock market. They didn't want to give much back. So they were on pins and needles watching for any sign to get out. So some of this is seasonal. Some of it's technical computer trading. Some of it's profit taking. It kind of just all got carried away. But uh, it began with nervousness over China and a major real estate company blowing up over there. Uh, eventually, Wall Street decided, you know, it's probably not going to be a contagious, probably not going to hurt the global economy or U.S. They got over that. But by then, it was time to start worrying over 
this debt ceiling. And they, as soon as they realized the politicians were back to playing chicken with one another and fighting over this, then it escalated. They just started selling even more. And yes, the last few days we've seen huge down days and then suddenly a huge up day. What's going on is if it's down yesterday, then this morning they take a chance on buying right out of the gate with the hopes that if it's going up all day long, that by the end of the day, we get the news, they fix the debt ceiling. Then they've already got a better price. They're already back on board and the market can just soar and it probably will soar as soon as they fix it. And But the problem is, as it gets near the end of the day, if they don't hear any news that, hey, we fixed it, then they're going to sell overnight and sell into the next day. And we're seeing these gyrations from day to day, buy it today, sell it tomorrow, buy it the next day. And they're just trying to lower their price. <clears throat> they're selling, but they're saying if it goes a little bit lower, take a chance and buy it. <clears throat> and then if they don't fix the debt ceiling, sell it again. And it's making it kind of difficult for people to keep up with what the market's trying to do here. <clears throat> Yesterday, I told my subscribers, yeah, we had an up day, but I felt like it's going back down today. And what? And the market's already off 50 and the S&P 500. I don't know where the Dow is, but I'm guessing it's off 400. So another big down day because they haven't fixed the debt ceiling. And what we're what the market is watching is October 18th is in theory when the U.S. could go into default. And if it does go into default, we're probably going to see a crashing stock market. You're going to see commodities crash. <clears throat> Everything's going down other than, say, interest rates might actually soar in response to that. Um, and the dollar may soar, not in the sense of a good economy, which is how most people look at it. It'll soar in terms of a safe haven uh, as a worry of what's going on. Um, and so it won't be pretty, but my guess is we'll get over. It's not an end of world stir, uh, scenario. Commodities recover because people still got to eat. People still going to go to work. Stock market's going to catch on to that. It's going to recover. But the next phase is going to be really long-term. And that is a default could hurt our relationships with our import importers and exporters. And so it could hurt commodities, how high they can rally this decade. It can hurt the stock market, how well it will do, how well business will do. It can hurt the economy, how well it will do. But it's not going to stop it. Uh, I don't see an end of world scenario. I know some people are trying to scare us into that, but I just don't see it. Now, if we if we have two or three, four defaults in the next few years, uh, maybe we're in trouble for an entire decade that uh, business would be very poor. But I don't think so. And I think they'll fix the default quickly. But uh, the point is, why go there? We just don't really need to do that. And why do we need to crash our commodities and stocks over that and then have to put them all the way back up again? So uh, I'm hopeful they fix it, but that's what we got to watch out for. Uh, in theory, we could go in default sooner or later than October 18th. Treasury Secretary Yellen came out and just said that was the best guess of when, the, when they run out of money and there's nothing left to do. Mm -hmm. But some people are saying it could come early or later, even in, a, in a, as late as November, even early November. Uh, another thing we'll watch out for is October 31st, they'll probably be voting on the rest of, or the two major uh, programs in Biden, President Biden's agenda. Uh, they'll be watching that because that could be the next uh, little bit of stimulus here to push the economy uh, forward. And then in December 3rd, unfortunately, even if we fix this debt ceiling right now, December 3rd, we'll be back to uh, voting over the next phase of funding that relates to that debt ceiling, actually. Yeah. So we can have some twists and turns here <coughs> for a while. But my model, <coughs> my model is saying, even though we've hit this bumpy road, that's about all it is, that 
the economy should still grow to late this decade. And for anybody that hasn't been listening to me on this, the economy, as best I can tell for the history of this nation, and I think I can prove it in Europe going back hundreds of years, believe it or not, we basically build economy for seven to 12 years. We have a recession for one to three years. So it takes us about seven to 12 years to get to a point when something breaks down, that we just can't borrow anymore. We can't go have more debt. Uh, business just hits a peak. Things get too expensive. Something goes wrong. And then we also bring in the fear factor and companies start cutting back. They lay off people and it makes it worse. And it's interesting. It works. I want to say like a clock, but when I say seven to 12 years, obviously that's not precise. <laughs> and we don't live our, our lives precisely like a clock, but we, we actually live and do business something like a clock. And uh, if, if you calculate from last year, which is the bottom of the recession, then you simply add seven to 12 years and that'll give you a clue how long it'll take us. And I don't see the Fed interfering with that. If anything, they'll help it. Um, so it's, it's kind of nerve wracking sometimes when you try to tell people, be patient. You got a lot of money to be made out of the stock market. You got a lot of money that, you know, the economy is going to grow. You can make a lot of money in your business. And then you get these news things going on in the politics and people get scared. They're saying, Oh, he's wrong. It's not going to work. But if you go back and study history, it's amazing how so much bad news was thrown at us. And yet that business cycle worked. And so I have to stay with it. My forecast is we still have a growing economy to come. And the stock market <clears throat> actually runs a positive correlation, a better correlation today than 100 years ago. A lot of people think the stock market has nothing to do with the economy, has nothing to do with the fundamentals anymore. Well, they're somewhat correct. The stock market has always had a partial disconnect. It's always either led or lagged fundamentals in the economy somewhat. But in, for this specific business cycle, it actually works better than ever for the stock market. It basically goes up for seven to 12 years. Instead of going down for one to three years, the stock market likes to have a miniature crash. It likes to go down for just a few months, no more than a year. So the stock market gets it over uh, that recession period, gets over it a lot faster than the actual economy. So there's a little difference there. Um, and it's interesting, even some people say, well, the Fed rigs this whole system and they create these problems. Well, the Fed started in 1913. Well, I went back and looked at this business cycle all the way back to year 1800 and found it worked back then about the same it is today in terms of a timeline. Uh, all you could say is maybe the Fed has kept us from having depressions and deep recessions. And that's what they're supposed to do. That's their mandate. They're supposed to help us out, uh, basically protect ourselves from our, ourselves of overreacting and becoming negative. So uh, I don't see anything changing here. I think there's a lot of money to be made in the stock market, but you know, there's going to be twists and turns. I will not be surprised to see the stock market down as much as 10, 12% sometime next year. The model's trying to figure out when and that will occur, but it is saying it probably will occur. Um, but that's not going to change anything. Uh, looking out late this decade, the stock market could be up a lot from, compared to what it's day. So somehow we'll get through this whole uh, debt ceiling business and, and move on, but we'll probably be back again and again uh, you know, to create these twists and turns. But And just keep in mind, economy kind of throttles up, throttles down, it hits speeds, bumps. But in general, I just don't see anything changing here to have a higher economy or a rising economy, growing economy for uh, several years yet. But just keep in mind, if it may seem a little different than some of the recent decades just because we're going to have higher inflation with that. And we're also going to have higher interest rates along with it. Uh, we have changed something here a bit. Yeah. All right. So the last thing before we jump into the main topic here is so 
this natural gas thing that's going on. There's a kind of thing about high natural gas. It's not only, um, you know, heat and electricity and those kind of things. It's also fertilizer. So I guess when you look at, at what's going on with natural gas and the, and the soy prices uh, that we see there, trying to lock, you know, farmers trying to lock in their input costs for 22. I guess as you take a look at what, what these are, what this is looking like, um, kind of makes you think a little bit and there might not be as much corn get planted. It might switch more to soybeans next year, I guess, but I guess what's your thoughts on natural gas and, and, and what do you see happening? You know, you kind of touched on it earlier, but more in depth when you start looking at energy costs and then you start looking at fertilizer costs, it all kind of comes back to that natural gas. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and we went, we've seen quite a while of natural gas trading in that two to $3 area. Now it's over six or something like just exploded yeah. straight up. Um, I used to love to trade uh, natural gas as something a little extra, but I haven't done it for years. I kind of had to last night, I even dug out my old model and dusted it off a little bit. So I don't necessarily use that as an input for most of my uh, commodities, but uh, I, I just ran the model quickly and said, so what's going to happen this month? And it does look like it could well go higher for this entire month, but it is suggesting it ought to ease back next year when we look at the long-term scenario. But the problem is, Farmers normally will book some fertilizer as they go into year end for that next year. And even if natural gas declines by a sizable amount early next year, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised it will. The problem is how much higher does it go during winter if it turns cold and, and how long does it really take to balance those, that supply demand because the prices can come down a huge amount because it suddenly realizes, Hey, looking out in the future, you know, it is going to change. It's too high price. And so you can see like the futures market in natural gas coming down much faster than maybe the cash even. And then even if the cash comes down at a fast pace and a size amount, if it tri- by the time it trickles through all the processing over to fertilizer, that could take quite a while. And so you could see how it's already late enough that even if this thing ends in just a few weeks here, you're still going to wind up with higher net uh, fertilizer prices for next year. Right. Uh, so it's a tricky situation because if I use just natural gas, I'd say, well, I guess I don't want to lock in fertilizer now. On the other hand, fertilizer could be lagging natural gas as it's starting down. Fertilizer continues to go higher for a while, then finally comes down and still doesn't come down fast enough to be there in time when you absolutely must buy it. So it's a it's a tough situation. Do you lock it in or not? And yes, I think we have to dial in that uh, we're stuck with some higher higher. Uh, prices of fertilizer. That's not something I study in great detail. So I, I can't tell you just how, what price level in the next 60 days and the next 180 days and things like that. Um, but it is an issue and you you can de- bet that uh, people have got to dial that in between the corn and soybeans. I, there is that chance to change that, influence that acreage next year. So uh, that, that's a that's a complication we don't need right now. Uh, in the grain markets. And can it translate to help out by supporting uh, grain prices? Uh, maybe, but I don't think the average, uh, especially on the speculative side, cares that much. If they think corn needs to go down, they're, they're, they're going to sell corn regardless of natural gas, but they may not sell it as much. Uh, whereas a commercial might think differently of you know how negative they want to be. The commercial, commercial might say, you know what, we're going to have to pay a little more down the road because these farmers are paying high, higher for inputs. 
Um, but today, my modeling on the grains is not saying this is a reason to rally grains. If grains are going to rally this winter, it's got to come from uh, overall higher inflation and more of like maybe crop issues in South mm-hmm. America. Yep. So it's tricky on the farmer because I am not changing my forecast to lower grain prices going in the next year. And now their inputs may well rocket higher on them. Right on. Something to pay attention to there. Like you just said, there's there's a lot of moving parts there when just because one comes down, to, you know, the lagging factors back there can really come back and jump at you. All right. So all of that stuff we've talked about here kind of leads into what you really want to talk about on this thing here was, was real estate. And what those real estate values look like, and also I asked you to talk a little bit about uh, farmland values because I've had a lot of reports out of Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, um, Missouri, and those places where they've seen some some uh, not quite record prices for farmland, but it's pretty close. So I guess talk about what you see happen in the real estate market. Yeah, I don't know if we want to switch to a screen here because I can yep. show. Uh... Let me give you. All right, you should be good to go. And then we want to go here. And can you see it? No, sir. Maybe I didn't click on it correctly. Uh, Where did my share screen go? Share screen. Oh, I had to click up here and then click there. There you go. Got it now. Okay. All right. This is a chart that was out on Twitter. So unfortunately, I forgot to write down who put it out there. But uh, basically, they were taking what's called the uh, Case-Shiller index data, uh, which is someone, uh, economist Schiller and economist Case, years ago, decades ago, put together some indexes to kind of keep track of home prices. Uh, So we're not talking land here. But um, the uh, this became so popular that the S&P 500, uh, or not the S&P 500, the S&P company, Standard Poor's, that has the S&P 500 stock index, uh, they basically purchased this and uh, present this as part of their service. So what's going on here is this first, uh, one of these indexes is showing, they're both showing year-on-year percent returns. And look at this as we go into this year. higher than a year ago for U.S. and then also a sub-index of 20 of the major cities in the U.S. So I just think that's phenomenal as a nation. I get it for some cities. I get it for some locations. But for a nation to be pumping out a 20% gain and real estate prices. And I just this year took on a sideline business here where I'm working with my family's real estate business and we see it. Okay. And it's nuts out there. Okay. Uh, we just tried to list a property, a little recreational property, a cabin and a few acres. And by doing comparables, how a realtor would normally do it, it was worth 110 to 120,000. Realtors come in and went as high as 150,000, which told me they paid no attention to comparables. They did no math. They just flew through darts at it, which means they're thinking the buyers out there can be that crazy, that nuts, and they might be able to get it. Uh, this is just getting out of hand. And if you look at this chart, you can see it's getting out of hand. This goes all the way back before 1990. Okay, So we know what's going to occur sooner or later. These yields are coming down. You're not going to make as much money year to year uh, out of your home okay, or buying and selling homes, flipping homes. 
Now, um, I didn't bother to label this chart, but I actually have a model in the, my real estate model that doesn't use this chart. It uses a variety of other things, but I could label some of the more important points, bottoms and tops, that there is a business cycle going on in real estate. And the interesting thing is it does correlate somewhat with that business cycle I just told you of the economy and the stock market, that basically for a few years at least, and maybe several years during a decade, you're going to get a rise in real estate prices. And it, it's because the economy is growing and people get excited out of a recession. So quite often that rise in real estate comes in soon after recession. Well, here we are. We're pulling out of recession. We are out of recession. And these prices are soaring. The answer thing is every other decade, the upside is far more important. You get a much bigger bang. And it turns out this was one of those every other decades. And lo and behold, history repeated. We did the same thing. We got way excited, way too excited, in my opinion, but we did it. Okay. We're spending the dollars. And granted, the money's freer, easier to get. Interest rates are still relatively very low. And so you can understand where the ammunition, the fuel is to drive this. But the point is, you also had something going on with people saying, I want a home and I want it now. And some of them are buying second homes. Some of them are buying recreational properties. Okay, uh, We're seeing business where people want to buy 20 or 30 acres, which is difficult to do because most of our farms we deal with, you know, you know, they're two or 300 acres and it's too expensive to break them up, which is sad. So we're very tight on 20 or 30 acres where people want to get out of the city. They want their 20, 30 acres, pop up a little home. They'll tell their employer, I'm working from my countryside home and uh, they want to do it. And the money's there. And they're literally just stumbling over one another to get it bought. Well, they're going to pay too much here eventually. And what I think is going to occur in just the next few years, I wouldn't be a bit surprised as soon as next year, we're going to see this rate start coming down. Okay. And I don't know how fast it's going to come down, but maybe it comes down to where uh, houses are 10% more expensive next year. And this is how inflation works. I keep saying inflation rates coming down next year, but if it comes down from 5% to 3%, that's down for the rate, but it's still 3%, meaning the prices you're paying the store went up 3%. That's how this real estate is going to work. It may come down to 15%. It just means that people buying a house next year paid 15% more than this year even, okay? And it'll start down, and eventually how the cycle works is it will get down to zero, and by late this decade, I think it'll be going into the minus territory. And near the end of this decade, the economy should peak. We should have a recession. And you can argue every other decade, it seems as though the real estate market does not pay much attention to recession. It does not go down much. Well, that was this last cycle bottom. So the remaining every other decades, it comes down a lot. And, and that's going to be near the end of this decade. So we had that every other decade pattern where we were supposed to get a big bang in real estate prices. We got it. But what's coming after that is a big drop. So eventually people, by near the end of the decade, some of these people buying the way up are suddenly going to wake up. Wow, what happened? My house is worth less than what I thought. And uh, I've seen this personally <laughs> with my own homes. Uh, my wife and I in the 2000s with that big boom in the real estate, that was one of those every other boom decades. We've had a uh, built a custom home and we built it, fortunately, uh, a few years before that boom hit. But when that boom hit, our home was worth uh, double, more than double. I think it was, went up two and a half times, literally within less than a year. And we decided we want to live there the rest of our life. So we said, well, we won't sell it. And then the financial crisis hit. And next thing we know, our home was worth less than what we paid for it. 
but within two or three years, it was back to normal. So my guess is even if we get a hard hit at the end of this decade, probably next decade, you'll see prices recover. Two decades from now, you'll get another big bang. Okay. Uh, so it's interesting how it works. So people shouldn't, uh, people shouldn't be that scared if they really needed a home now, pay the price. Chances are you're going to win over the next couple of decades if you're going to own it that long. If for some reason you're only owning it to near the end of the decade, you you might get clipped a bit. So uh, very tricky because you could see people, they're not necessarily insane because some of them need to buy homes. And unfortunately, they're buying homes when everyone else is buying. Right. And, and the seller has learned, gosh, you know, Jim down the road sold his for 30% more than he thought he was going to sell for. Well, why wouldn't I try to do that? And pretty soon they're saying, well, why wouldn't I try for 50? It, yeah. It's a crazy market out there. And I do not see anything that's going to change us. You're going to have to have an asteroid hit the planet here uh, before the end of the decade. And then, yes, everything may crash. And then I'll say, wow, you know what? This business cycle didn't work for the first time in hundreds of years. And first time since I've used it in my career. Um, you know, you, you always have to consider that. You always have to wonder what else can go wrong. <clears throat> but right today, even with this debt ceiling and a chance of going default in the U.S., uh, I don't see it. Um, it, it it's going to, you know, we're going to get inflation this decade. We're going to get higher interest rates. Economy still going to grow. Stock market is going to go higher. We may still see real estate move a bit higher here over time. But, you know, we just all got to realize you have good times and then you have bad times. And there's bad times probably coming at the end of this decade. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, now, farmland prices. How many prices? I got, a, I got a quick question, Rich. Okay. All right. So on the housing side, all right. So out here where I live at, Scottsbluff, Nebraska, sleepy little town in the middle of the you know far western edge of, of Nebraska, and I've bought and sold three houses here. I think, you know, three houses, and it, every house that I've sold, um, except for this last round, right? That's the one I just sold and the one I just bought. Um, he typically took anywhere between six months and a year to sell your house, right? Not that many people moving into town and all that kind of stuff. Well, here of late, any housing, you know, it's tight. I mean, every, every house that, that's up for sale is getting bought. So if all these people are buying houses, you know, in Scotts Bluff and um, near, you know, the countryside of New York and those kind of things, if everyone's buying something here, where, where where's the gaps at? Where, where are the gaps at in the marketplace that, is it, is it that that urban development that is <clears throat> more urban? Um, you know, is that is that going to be, uh, you know, all these high-priced apartments and stuff like that in downtown San Francisco and Chicago and, you know, New York and those kind of places? Is it the suburbs of the major cities where people are moving out? I mean, where, where is the, if one place is climbing, there's got to be someplace else that's lagging. So I guess where, have you seen that anywhere in your, in your models or in your research? It is interesting. It's difficult to find areas that are actually lagging. It's like even the poorest of homes are actually uh, going up in value. I do think rents have been way too high for quite some time. So obviously, especially a young couple, they're trying to save if they could just get the credit, they know they might as well buy the house because really interest rates are still so low yeah. that and and you can argue that's some people are saying that's why these prices shoot up so much though because interest rates are so low and and it's kind of like you know if if we had higher interest rates we wouldn't see 
prices rally this much. So there is a game going on there, a balance. You're either going to pay more to the banker, you're going to pay, or you're going to pay more to the seller of that home. And uh, I do think some of it is, is people trying to get out of renting, get into a home, and then they feel more comfortable. They're doing something long-term that's better for their pocketbook. Plus, they may enjoy life. They may actually want a home. Some people don't. They just soon continue to rent. But it's interesting. I'm not seeing that like that sucking sound of certain regions of, uh, you know, where are these these people moving from here to here? And and some of it may be that, especially for the the larger cities where they can get in more of this remote um, work, that they're not necessarily selling their home in a city that's going up in value. So now they're buying the home out in the country and saying, I'm going to start working from there because I can get good internet. Mm-hmm. Well, now they they may be taking on even more debt, which is why we might have a serious fallout at the end of this decade. They're also going to have now two homes. Okay. And they might be happy with that because they're making money, but where would they be at the end of this decade if things go down, you know? So, yeah, I, I get your gap question. It's got to be there. I must say I'm not seeing it yet. Um, it, it should show up eventually because what will happen is that's where this demand's going to stop. Eventually, people are going to just going to find out, you know what, where did our buyers go? Uh, they're not rushing in here like they once were, you know. And even though it seems like every week we hear of a home even around here sold full price, maybe even a little higher. We are seeing people being a bit cautious. They are bidding lower, trying to. Uh, whereas, uh, gosh, back in June, nobody was bidding lower. If you wanted it, buy it. We have seen something where the homes are selling fast, like they're sold in just two weeks here. Uh, and yet nobody's looking at the homes that have been on the market for 100 to 300 days. And. Yeah. You know, that's irrational thinking. They're thinking, oh, must be there's something wrong with that home and nobody's nobody has bought it. And they really need to consider those homes. Those may, may actually be the better opportunity to wheel and deal and get a better value. I mean, there may be a reason that the home is not selling, but I'm just saying people make too big a deal of that statistic. I've heard it for years. I used to do the same thing when I was buying homes. Well, there must be something wrong with that home. Now that I'm in the real estate business, I realize people say that all the time, but it's not. It's not a correct way of thinking, not a good way of thinking. Yep. Um, so yeah, there's there's got to be a gap there, and when it, but it, I had not seen any evidence, and I think by the time we do, we're also going to say, you know what, the demand's kind of peaked here; they're backing off, and the reason is you've just run out of those people that were rushing, say, out of the city to go out into the country that they bought all they can buy, and and then pretty soon. Maybe you see people within the city saying, actually, there's some decent value in the city. And it does, you know, for the history of this country, you've seen things swing between the city and rural America back and forth of uh, population movement, demographics. So, yeah, yeah, but uh, like I say, I don't see a lot of evidence of that gap. It's almost like seems like everybody's buying. It's it's insane. All right, so let's jump over and talk about farmland. You know, that is a, uh, obviously, commodity prices are up, and that's a big driver in, in farmland values, I guess. So as you take a look at, at the farmland values and what you see out there right now, are you seeing a similar reaction to uh, kind of like the chart you have up there? Yeah, uh, you can see, the, like, especially the corn belt area, soybean belt area, you know, especially when you get into that Midwest, that prime land, it's been going up for a very, very long time. You could argue it's leveled off at times too. Uh, Still a strong market. And why wouldn't it be 
when we've had 12, 13, $14 soybeans and, you know, five, six, $7 corn, that makes sense to me. Um, are we seeing a rush for the speculative side? I do try to keep track of some investment type companies that buy farms and they have seen still decent demand, but I don't sense they're seeing like record demand to invest in, in farmland. It's there because people are thinking it's a safe haven. It's a hard asset. I can see it, feel it, touch it. But there is a little bit of that. Let's, let's use it to bet on inflation, hedge inflation. Um, but when you move out, but I question how much higher really can that land that's already high priced relative to the rest of the nation and high priced relative to say a couple of decades ago. When you move outside of that corn belt, I've seen a little bit bigger percent increase. And I understand that because they lagged that prime land, okay, that prime agricultural business area, but uh, not nearly the explosion like in the homes. Uh, but we're seeing land for farming and even farms themselves have edged up up a bit here. And I don't know how much to really dial in for, for hire. I, it's not going to be as explosive as these homes. And I think it will level off in just a couple of years here. Uh, but you can also argue it's not going to be down as much as the homes near the end of this decade. So there can be some built-in safety of land, farms relative to um, homes. If I'm a banker, uh, I realize bankers hate the loan on land. It's it's just difficult. I've never understood it. It's a hard asset, uh, but they want you to put down a lot of money. They'd rather loan on the barns and everything else. And my opinion, if it's if it's good farmland, uh, I'll loan on it. So <laughs> it's just I just don't see the downside risk there uh, yet. Anyways, I realize when you're paying ten or fifteen thousand for corn ground, you would think there's got to be more risk there. But uh, maybe we'll see something near the end of the decade, but I think it's farther away than, than that. I think you've got some downside support, less risk there, but I also don't think there's that much upside left for some of that prime land, frankly. I don't, I don't see where it's coming from because even though the economy is going to grow, problem is you've got so much competition around the world in these commodities. If, if I knew for sure corn was going to 10 to $12 a bushel, then I'd say differently. <laughs> you know, that $15,000 an acre probably will be 20, 25 for all I know. But I, yeah. I, I don't have that in the forecast either, even though I, I want to be friendly commodities now in the next decade when I can. Uh, I don't have $10 corn on the horizon here. So. So well, you yeah. figured out ten dollar corn. Let me know because I want to buy some corn now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And we may and to, to add something to that too, though. Uh, even though I'm, I'm bearish the grains in the next year, and I think it's working for me. USDA just gave a grain stocks report on the yep. soybean side. It was bearish, and I've, I've been saying sooner or later you're going to see a hint. And 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 it's funny how this works. You you get. Look how many bullish reports we got. What was it? 12 months of bullish reports out of USDA. Uh, granted, the last few months were kind of the old news scenario, but at least they weren't bearish. And so you have to figure as soon as you get one or two not so good months, then maybe that's a sign you're going to get several months of uh, at least not so bullish anyways. So I think this will work of pulling these grain prices back. But I'm, I've said for years now, I still think we got a crop problem coming no later in 2024. And this year was the first year for it. Didn't work. Didn't work in Western Iowa. No question about it. Uh, certainly was a, some, a big deal for, for North Dakota. Um, and really for the whole Western U.S. 
but it's not what I'm looking for. And I think it's still on the table. I think it's still going to work. Well, if it hits next year, granted, I may say, well, I was right. Prices come down early in the year, but look at that. Summertime, they rocketed higher. And it, it can work. Uh, there's probabilities there it could possibly occur, but I'm personally targeting 2023. So I think I think maybe yields back off a little next year, maybe get a start towards dropping off in 23. So 23 could be that scenario, Mary, where we get these prices just as high as this year and maybe even higher. So that'll be something interesting to watch out. And I do say, even though inflation should back off next year, it's interesting. I see it up in 2020 or yeah, 2023, maybe 2024. That could be a sign of the next leg higher in the economy. Um, we've got to get through this debt ceiling and maybe winter here that can bother economy a little bit, but uh, maybe we're going to see that jump where things are getting better. Maybe, maybe late next year, we finally get all these people back to work and get fun of, full of employment and things are rolling. So uh, I do have some upside potential there. Whether that means another bounce in land prices, I'm not so sure, but I'll take a gamble by 2025, 2028, land prices probably won't be uh, rising much at all. Just a guess at the moment, but <laughs> I'll update along the way. <laughs> right on. Sounds good. Well, Rich, great stuff as usual. Um, give you out your, your website and your podcast information one more time. Yes. So go to criticalpointpod.com. Check that out. You'll find a link on there to subscribe to the service. You'll find another link that will just take you directly to the podcast site. It is a different site where I put up the podcast. If you want to go directly to that, uh, go to criticalpoint.podbean.com. Bean is in soybeans. And, uh, and then you'll find just a list and you can watch and listen and you can still subscribe there as well. And then on Twitter, you want to at rich underscore Posson. Uh, check that out as well. And you can email me at rich at ag-financial.com if you have any questions and uh, I'll follow up as soon as I can. Right on. Well, rich, I appreciate you being on the podcast, man. All right. Thank you very much. Right on. Well, I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Make sure you check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's where you're going to find the latest editions of the Moving Iron Podcast. Also, go to movingironllc.com. That's where you're going to find everything related to the podcast as well as the Moving Iron Summit. And I would look for some information for that to come out here in the uh, the next uh, month or so uh, as far as what agendas might look like and location and those kind of things. So with that, I am Casey Seymour with Rich Boston. Let's go with Iron folks. Out. You want to have a meaningful, competitive advantage to help sell more equipment. Whether you represent the sales, parts, or management department of an implement dealership, there's a surprising amount of complexity when it comes to tire, wheel, and track technology. Let Axon worry about that so you can get back to supporting your customers. Axon has leveraged years of experience to create a streamlined process that gives you a proven path to help today's grower and sell more equipment. The reach of their organization go back almost 100 years to the invention of the rubber tractor tire. Supporting agriculture is the number one driver of Axon from product development through sales and service. To find more or become an Axon dealer, head over to axontire.com. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hard